right here is Tom Gimbel, founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. Welcome back, Tom. Hello, John Williams. How are you? Happy Valentine's Eve, sir. I appreciate that. I'll be your Valentine. See, I think that's a problem. If the way to cozy up to the boss is to whisper sweet nothings or give them a box of chocolates or something, I would think that would be inappropriate, don't you? I do. I think that Valentine's Day should be uh, a holiday of fun and and joking. When I when I when I was a young salesperson, I would get those uh, kindergarten type Valentines with Snoopy on them or Spider Man, and I would hand them out to everybody in my little work area and my company and my group. Yeah, I would have fun with it, and I think that the whole concept of of doing things for people for the sake of an ulterior motive is is wrong. Well, wait a minute. You've been using the past tense. You used to do that. I I what do you say about that sort of uh, camaraderie today? Well, I'll tell you. I've done I, I've done so. I, I've started as you know. I've had the company for almost twenty six years. I used to um, have. I'd order flowers, uh, a little bouquet of flowers from the flower shop, and have them delivered to every single woman in the office on Valentine's Day. And that way, if people got, I, I remember walking through the offices in my early 20s and seeing people on the holiday and seeing people get sad because somebody's husband, boyfriend, whatever, sent them flowers, and not everybody got them. So my belief, and I did this for over 20 years, was that every girl would have flowers on her desk on Valentine's Day, and then no one would ever feel left out. And two things got in the way of that. Number one uh, was COVID and people not being in the office, and it was really hard to, to logistically do it. And then number two was the concept of um, people saying that it wasn't fair to men and it was uh, gender and, and so on and so forth. So we stopped that process. Yeah, well, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not surprised, which is maybe a shame. But, I mean, you're the company that has—you uh, encourage your employees to come to uh, work on March Madness so everybody can watch the game together, right? So I, Absolutely. Okay, you've got a watch party, and I think that's great. But I think that Valentine's Day, as a measure of affection, that's what Valentine's Day is about— is kind of a different holiday. Like if the boss was handing out cutesy, lovey, old school Valentine's Day cards, uh, I, I I wouldn't go down that road, Tom. I know you're just trying to have fun uh, here, but better intentions than right. that have blown up on people. I think you're right. I think I think you know the best intentions, whatever the the saying is, and I think the world is a different place. Um, I think it's unfortunate because no one means any any ill will. Usually, I'm sure there's are some people, and there'll be a couple textures on that. But I think at the end of the day, there's a reason that Valentine's isn't a, a federal holiday, right? It's a Hallmark <laughs> yeah, exactly, holiday. exactly. And I think if we over-dramatize it, you know, all of a sudden we're not going to be able to wear costumes on Halloween, and we can't wear an American flag shirt on the 4th of July. And I think it gets a little weird if the boss is giving it to one person of any gender um, and nobody else. If they give it to everybody, I think it encompasses what the moment is, and that's to say it's Valentine's Day. Loosen up, Francis. So if the billboard for this conversation, though, is how to fix a bad relationship with your boss, and 
We're talking yep. about a professional relationship here. Uh, yep. You got any bullet points for me on that? Yeah, I think the key is is number one, you have to take ownership for for it takes two to tango. So if you have a tough relationship with your boss, it's always easy to blame them. But you have to look in the mirror and say, what could I have done differently? And and to think always something could have been said or not said that helps, number one. Number two, I think to look and try to understand why the relationship is bad. Is it personality driven? Is it work product driven? Is it is it something else? And I think it, once you can find out what the problem is, it's a lot healthier than just saying we don't get along. you got to try to figure out why. And I think when you do that, you really get into some self-discovery, and then you also get into how you can make it better. But if you don't know what's broken, you can't fix it. It's pretty well put. And that's Tom Gimble, founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. How many folks do um, – are you guys all in the office for that uh, March Madness watching party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all. In. I mean, we're all in the. We have we have a few random remote people, but the majority of our people are in the office, and and then we have people in for March Madness with our clients and such. Oh, I see. How many people do, uh, work at your office every day, Tom? Uh, well, we have a few offices, but in Chicago, which is the mothership, we've got uh, about 160. And of that 160, 150 are reporting to the office every day. 160 are reporting to the office every day. Uh. That's uh, Tom Gimble, founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. Thank you very much, Tom. Absolutely. Be safe and look for Cupid. <laughs> Continuing on the Valentine's Day theme, sort of, on the Wintrust Business Lunch, Philip Weiss, the president of Seifarth at Work, joins us again to talk a little bit about marital status at the workplace. Hi, Philip. Hi, John. Uh, happy Valentine's Day. Minus one. Absolutely. I didn't know there was such a thing as marital status discrimination. I guess there's every kind, but what are you even talking about? Yeah, uh, you're not alone, John. Uh, you know, the, you know, a lot of the Valentine's-related risks in the workplace are the obvious ones. People talking about their romantic escapades, people getting uh, too chummy with a coworker. But uh, there's a related risk that a lot of bosses themselves are unaware of. And in Illinois, for example, along with a number of other states, marital status, talking too much about marriage at the wrong moments, is included in the risk, is a protected area under the law. And, and what's really fascinating, John, is that includes making employment decisions or treating someone differently because they're married because they're single, because they're divorced, et cetera. So it's the entire status. Uh, but a lot of the cases that we see come down to someone being talked to or treated differently once they get married. Give me an example. Yeah, so uh, this is an interesting one. We helped a company because uh, it's a pharma company out of the East Coast. A senior manager uh, learned that one of his sales reps was about to get married and he figured she would want to spend more time with her spouse. He wanted to respect uh, their time together as newlyweds. So he changed her sales route to make it less demanding to require far less travel so she could be with her spouse fully in his mind, uh, pursuing good intentions. But the result of that altered sales route, John, was also an altered commission maximum. So she ended up with a compensation uh, that was more than $100,000 less the following year. 
And so this is a great example of don't assume and don't make changes because someone is or is not married. Is the uh, same true if someone is um, going to have a baby? Can you ask them, are they pregnant? Are they going to get pregnant? And um, I, I don't know if this is the same thing, but it's, you know, sort of the life status of somebody. I, what, what rules apply there? Yeah, that would be highly risky. So it's good you mentioned it for your listeners who are managing or running businesses. Uh, and what's really fascinating about that pregnancy question, John, is it, it connects to more than one legal category. Because we've had cases, John, where someone's uh, announcement of a pregnancy uh, caused others to decide they're no longer on the fast track because they'll be taking care of those kids. Yeah. Um, but even someone getting married, and we've seen this with both genders, uh, led another person of authority to say, hey, kids are around the corner. Um, I, for that promotion, I'm thinking someone else is a safer bet whose kids are grown or whose yep. has no immediate prospects in my mind. So uh-huh. you're so right. These categories absolutely connect to one another. But can you do that? Can, you, can, that, can that be a consideration? They're married and they're about to have kids. I don't want to give them this big promotion traveling to the West Coast because they're not going to be able to give me the kind of commitment that they were when they were either single or without children. So is can that be a consideration, Philip? Only insofar, John, as you're in a situation, for example, where the employee brings up the fact that they are pregnant or their significant other is pregnant or spouse is pregnant or about to have a baby or about to adopt a kid, and they want an accommodation. They want the adjustment. Barring that in employee-initiated process, it's really about their performance. And you can hold people to their expected performance standards. You don't alter those because of life changes. But if you realize someone has a medical condition or they bring up the fact that they need an accommodation, then that triggers a process. So it's a little bit tricky. And you don't want your managers supervisors making that entire determination on their own. So if they see a change in performance and they think it's linked to something like pregnancy, they need to make a call to someone who has the compliance skills and experience to navigate that very difficult, treacherous road. Mm. Okay. Philip Weiss, President, Seifarth at Work, seifarthatwork.com. I got more questions for that and no time for it. We'll continue this conversation another day. Have a great week, Philip. Same to you, and uh, thanks much, John. Yeah, a little caution to the wind there. Put Valentine's talk aside for just a minute and talk about something uh, just as timely, I would say, and that is tax season. Phyllis Cavallone-Jurek is here, the executive director of Ladder Up. This helps people with their taxes, if they qualify. Hi, Phyllis. Welcome to WGN again. Hi. Thanks for having me. So just tell us a little bit about Ladder Up. Who are you guys? Yeah, so Ladder Up, we are a financial nonprofit and we provide hardworking people with the resources they need to move up the economic ladder by our, hence our name. We do three main services. We provide free tax uh, preparation, free tax legal services, and financial education. I see you have 13 locations throughout Chicagoland. Who funds you or pays for you? 
Yeah, so a lot of, we get we get that question a lot. Um, so we're provided by funding um, as a nonprofit from you know various individuals who support our mission, some grants, but the 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 majority is from the government agencies, including the IRS. Uh, we run um, our tax program. We run an IRS VITA program, and so uh, you know they give us funding. Uh, the state of Illinois, the city of Chicago, and other government grantee, grantors give us um, a lot of funding. So free tax assistance for mm-hmm. whom? What's the threshold? The threshold is 64000 for families and 32000 for individuals. And then if you choose to use our digital services, uh, which you can locate on our website, goladderup.org, uh, the threshold is 73000 And then how does somebody access you? Is it by appointment in an office with paper forms the way we used to, or is it an online process? Yeah, so you go to our website, um, search for a location that's convenient to you physically, wherever you live or work, um, and look at the hours, and it's first come, first serve. So if you find a location that works for you, um, you know, make it out. Uh, we prefer people to come out early because we tend to fill up pretty quickly. And we want, if you set aside time to come out and, and do this, we want to make sure we could serve you. So head out on the earlier part, um, you know, of the hours and uh, we'd be happy to see you. So I guess people need to bring whatever relevant paperwork there is, right? Their W-2s and stuff like that. Correct. We need to see a government photo ID. We need to see original Social Security card for you and anybody on the return uh, or an ITIN, uh, W-2 forms, 1099 NECs, uh, uh, 1099G, Social Security, and uh, anything that you would get at the end of January, your typical uh, forms. So bring them all in. Don't wait um, or don't come in knowing something is still in route. Make sure you've got everything because we want to... you know, provide an accurate return for you. Yeah, no sense in filling the slot if we can't do you any good. And then do mm. people bring receipts for charitable donations? Or has they sure the fresh, do. But it seems yeah. to me like for most people, they wouldn't qualify for charitable deductions these days. Well, you know, as always, with a lot of things, including um, different things like education credits, et cetera, people have receipts for things that they have spent um, their money on. I, I always say bring it in. We'll enter it. We'll look at it. We'll talk about it. Um, you know, it can't hurt. And we could determine, uh, you know, every situation is unique, as you know. Yeah. We can um, we can determine it. We are really good at, get, at obtaining credits um, and doing so free. Um, we know a lot of services that are paid. Sometimes there's another fee added on to determine eligibility. Um, all our services are free, so we could we could troubleshoot everything, you know, and if everybody wants to bring in different receipts, et cetera, we, we could certainly look through them and um, let them know what they qualify for. So if you and I are sitting there and we determine mm-hmm. I have the, all, all the paperwork I need, uh, yes. do we electronically submit my return right there or do I go home yes. and do it? No, everything will be completed. We have a three-step process. We Right when you come in, we look at your paperwork. We make sure you have everything. We ask a lot of questions right then and there. We want to make sure we serve you and, you know, make good use of your time. And then uh, the second step is you meet with the tax preparer. They enter the information. And then the third step is um, we'll print everything out, and another person will review all the data once more to make sure it's accurate and we've captured everything, and then review your return. And if, um, you know, everything feels comfortable, you give us the thumbs up, and we submit it right then and there. You guys any good at college loans? 
<laughs> well, we're really good at college credits, the American Opportunity, Lifetime Learning. Um, we work with a lot of partner orgs um, to get the word out uh, because we want them to uh, access all their credits. Um, and we do know how to navigate the loans, um, you know, if, if people are still paying interest, et cetera. So. I was just teasing a little bit, but what do you mean by college? <laughs> what do you mean by college credits? Um, well, the um, actually, I meant the the credits for the American Opportunity or Lifetime Learning. Um, people often forget to bring the 1098T if they're going to school, and that either goes on, and it's an education credit for either the parent, if they're a dependent, or if the student is an independent, it, it goes um, um, along with the student. So, are yeah, you it's saying a great that the, credit. the tuition is deducted from your earned income if you are, I presume, again, below a certain economic level? Uh, uh, yeah, well, uh, under a certain um, income, yes, you there is a, a credit available for students or stu- student families, the the parent if they're a dependent. Um, if, if you print out your 1098T and you bring it in and you meet a lot of qualifications, there is a nice credit, an education credit up to 2,500 for um, undergrad students, 2,000 for lifetime learning if you're in grad school or you're taking another program. So it's pretty, you know, a lot of people forget about that one. So I, I like to, you know, do a shout out on that one. Well, everybody is so interested in student loan forgiveness <laughs> these days, but if you're paying, you might as well get the tax credit for it. We're talking with yeah. Phyllis cavalone Jurek, the executive director of Ladder Up. There's 13 locations in Chicagoland. Are you kind of spread around geographically throughout the area? We are. We have a lot of great locations. Brighton Park, downtown at Harold Washington Library, at Truman College, a lot of city colleges, Aurora, Cicero, Melrose Park, Naperville, Waukegan, Plainfield, um, Hermosa, Inglewood, uh, Olive Harvey, and, and yeah, I, I hope we're near someone where they live or work. We'd love to serve you. Okay, so if you just dialed in, if your individual income is below 32K, uh, as a couple, 64K or 73,000, if what was the caveat that gets you to 73,000? If you um, are feeling okay on the computer and you want to just use our digital services online oh, and upload everything, on yeah. Yeah, 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 we we can help navigate and do that at the comfort of your own home. Or we, um, if you feel more comfortable in person, you come out and see us. And I would set up an appointment online, click on and reserve a slot. Is that the idea? No, first come, first serve. We hope to have you come out earlier if you look at our hours. If it says like 9 to 3, please try to come out a little bit on that earlier side. We fill up fast, um, and we want to make sure we see you. So then it's a bunch of accountants uh, on uh, the side of a desk, and I plop down when it's my turn and just pour out my heart to you. Is that it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what a good idea. Okay, there's uh, good help. And to find the hours and locations near you, visit GoLadder, L-A-D-D, GoLadderUp.org, GoLadderUp.org. Phyllis Cavallone-Jerk, a great Phyllis. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. More business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Kroger, the parent company of Mariano's in Chicago, says it typically lowers prices for consumers after consummating a merger deal. The company's CEO made the comments as Kroger faces stiff regulatory pushback over its plan to merge with rival grocery chain Albertsons, which owns Jewel Osco. 
The $25 billion deal may be rejected because regulators are concerned it will limit competition and mean higher prices for groceries. Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen says the way to be America's best grocer is to provide great value by consistently lowering prices and offering more choices. Chicago-based Molson Coors has reported quarterly earnings that beat estimates. It appears the company's strategy of spending more on marketing at a time when competitor Anheuser-Busch faced controversy paid off. Molson Coors shares rose nearly 4% after the report was released. The boost partly came thanks to Coors Light, a top competitor of Bud Light, which faced a boycott last year after Bud Light's poorly received promotion featuring a transgender influencer. Molson says its Coors Light, Miller Light, and Coors Banquet each saw double-digit percentage increases. I'm Steve Brzezanich, and that's your Trust Business Minute. Okay, now let's do the business of food with Steve Alexander. Yeah, thank you. Here we go. It's Fat Tuesday, also known as Punchki Day. Am I saying that right? Punchki. Yeah, another lesson in how to say that word with a C and a Z and a K in the middle after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, it's spelled P-A-C-Z-K-I, <laughs> magically pronounced punchki. Oh, well, here to educate us about the proper way to say the word is... Dobro Belinsky, the owner of Delightful Pastries. That's over there on Lawrence Avenue in Jefferson Park. That's right. Okay, Dobra, if it isn't punchki, what is it? One punchek. Punchek? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and if, and if I have more than one punchek? Punchki. Ponchki. That's correct. But there's no S at the end. In the plural word, there's it's ponchki. Dobra's Delightful Pastries is one of many, many places around Chicago to get your ponchki today. If you're north of Chicago, though, near the border, this guy can help. Sure. My name is Eric Olison, President uh, Emeritus of O&H Danish Bakery in Racine, Wisconsin. Wait a minute. A Danish bakery making a Polish pastry? Yeah, the Danish version of the ponchki is called Fastelansbuller. Say that again. Buller. And O&H has 10 varieties of Buller. available today only. Tiramisu is the newest flavor for this year, and we use a, a Michigan apple. Of course, we wouldn't be Wisconsin without Door County Cherry. Yeah, I'm going to run out of time before he finishes, but there are five O&H bakeries around Racine. For the majority of your listeners, Steve, probably our closest location is at the corner of Highway 20 and I-94 in the Petro Travel Plaza. Of of course, O&H is known nationwide for its Kringle, and for Fat Tuesday and Mardi Gras, they are making a king cake version of the Kringle. And we put a nice, wonderful, creamy cream cheese filling inside of that, and we ice it up with three different colors of uh, sugar on top. And? Three strands of beads and a small baby, plastic baby. <laughs> Fat Tuesday, and it's also National Cheddar Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Ted Rossman joins us, senior industry analyst at Bankrate. Welcome back, and let's talk a little bit about buying homes and things like that. And 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 also, Ted, um, how people manage their finances. How many couples have separate accounts, and what's the wisdom on all of that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting topic, especially with Valentine's Day upon us tomorrow. Financial infidelity is a big deal. More than four in ten Americans are keeping financial secrets from their spouse. And I actually think a good workaround is this yours, mine, and ours school of financial management. So that's going to involve mixing a lot of your money because you have a lot of joint expenses, but also carving out some money that each partner can call theirs and theirs alone. I think this 
kind of hybrid approach is gaining traction as a way for people to have independence within a relationship. But the thing is, you have to agree on the parameters. Maybe it's $100 a paycheck. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's less. You just have to figure out how you're going to go about it. What if one of the partners doesn't make nearly as much as the other or doesn't work outside the home at all, has no outside income? There are all kinds of different ways to divide it up. Sometimes I hear about couples where one person makes significantly more. Maybe they pay a larger share of the household bills. We found that not as many couples as you would think completely combine their finances. Only 39% completely combine. So that leaves about 6 in 10 that either keep it completely separate, which is actually 24%, or those who do a mix. 38% have a mix of joint and separate accounts. This is the most common thing for Gen Xers and millennials, where they mix a lot of their money, but they also have some accounts that they can call their own, whether that's for hobbies or nights out with friends. or you know, The thing I like about this approach is that You've agreed upon the parameters, so it's not a secret, but you have some independence. The other person's not necessarily looking over your shoulder like you bought what and you spent how much. As long as you've agreed on what goes into that account, then I think that person can use it, no questions asked. You use the phrase financial infidelity. What's an example of that? Secret spending, secret bank accounts, secret credit cards, secret debt, All told, 42% of Americans who are married or living with a romantic partner have kept or are keeping at least one of those financial secrets. It's most common among Gen Zers. Two-thirds are keeping financial secrets in the Gen Z set. More than half of millennials, only about one in three Gen Xers and boomers. So this does seem to be on the rise, especially with younger generations. I wonder if the two-thirds of the Gen Zers that have financial secrets are hiding debt or hiding income. They got money in a drawer, or do they have a loan or a debt they don't want to share? Yeah, it could be all the above. The most common across generations is secret spending. That tends to be the biggest transgression. And I get it. You know, everybody wants their own independence, and they don't want to have to ask for permission for everything. We're seeing more two-income households. We're seeing people getting married later. I think all of this contributes to people maybe feeling a bit set in their ways, like, hey, it's my money. I can do what I want. I think the yours, mine, and ours thing is a good fix because it does give you independence, but the key is that you've agreed on how much goes into that account. So that's the difference between secret spending and going off on your own versus carving out a little Mm pre-planned independence. So if if my income or our income is $1,000 a paycheck, uh, we say, okay, there's $1,000, but 400 of it has to go to the mortgage. So now we're down to 600. You do a subtraction, subtraction, and then would you almost allow each an allowance from the pool of money and say, that's your money, you can do whatever you want with it? That is a way to think about it. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes young adults in particular are even putting envelopes together. I feel like this is an old fashioned method that's become trendy again on TikTok, Mm -hmm. the so-called cash stuffing trend, where maybe you even literally fill envelopes with cash for that's your restaurant budget for the month or that's your whatever the the case is, groceries, gas, uh, entertainment, your share of the housing bill. Um, uh, People divide it up all different ways. But I think the point is that it's good to agree upon the parameters. And it's also good to have a fixed amount in mind, because then 
you're able to work towards these collective goals. And I think that's another good thought is to have these conversations and think about the goals. It's not just the block and tackle what needs to get paid this month, but Mm. what are we trying to achieve in the next few years? Maybe it's buying a house or getting out of debt. When you get pulling in the same direction, that's a good thing. Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst, Bankrate.com. Really good stuff today, Ted. Thanks for your help. Thanks for having me.